Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Suzanne Spradley, and I'm joined here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are attorneys at the NFP Benefits Compliance Team, and we are here to talk to you about health reform. We like to throw in a little bit of history or background, and so we hope you enjoyed as much as we do. Today, we're going to hit on two topics that are relevant under the Republican Repealing Replace Agenda and the AHCA specifically. Um, But the first idea is essential health benefits. We did speak about it briefly on the last podcast, but felt that it was an important issue to dive into further. So we're going to dive into that issue again today. And the second being the CBO report that was released and its impact on the Senate's task of their repeal and replace efforts. So let's start with essential health benefits. Chase, give us a bit of color on EHBs as they're referred to. Where did they come from? Yeah, so the term essential health benefit or EHB, that originates with the ACA. So we saw that come into play back in 2010 as part of the ACA's creation and enactment. But basically, essential health benefit is a minimal level of coverage that we as a country sort of decided through this new law, the the ACA, um, that every insurance policy, at least in the individual and small group market, should cover certain benefits. And those benefits, that minimum level of coverage is referred to as the essential health benefits. So we really are talking mostly about small group for employers that are listening, but also the individual market. And we'll talk about large group and self-insured specifically here in a minute. Um, But those 10 categories, and we're not gonna go through them now, we covered a little bit on our last call, they were very broad and, and did not get into the specific details. Instead, the ACA sort of left those details or, or the, to specifically spell out what each of those categories is to the states. And those are called benchmark plans in each state. So each state essentially has their own benchmark plan and they vary slightly in what specific coverages are available under the 10 categories of essential health benefits. But again, it's this idea of let's create a minimum standard for anybody who buys a plan, they're going to know that they at least have basic services to go to the doctor, to go to the hospital for ambulatory services. Um, Every individual in the small and individual market will have that coverage. So that's a great point, Chase. You mentioned that they vary slightly from state to state. And the reason being is prior to the ACA, every state had mandates in their state so that some some, uh, states felt like their constituents uh, really had an interest in um, some type of maternity care or mental health issue or, or uh, whatever, but each state had their own mandates. And so the federal law came in and it provided kind of a standardization across the U.S. Yes. But as it turned out, it wasn't that standardized. They, they punted it back to the states. Right. So you've been mentioning that this is the individual and the small group market. Why would large employers, which is really the majority of our clients, um, not the majority, but we certainly have a lot of small group clients as well, but why would a large group employer, whether uh, employer, whether it be uh, an employer that buys a fixed insurance product or a self-insured employer, be interested in this topic? Right. So there's another reason that EHBs are important, and that relates to another ACA requirement. That requirement is that uh, it's a prohibition on annual and lifetime dollar limits for EHBs. So we just refer to this sometimes as, as annual and lifetime dollar limits. Um, that that means that a plan can't put a dollar limit on an essential health benefit. So if a state or the plan has said this is an essential health benefit, um, the plan can't limit how much I can incur in costs under that uh, for that service. So that rule applies quick to any size plan, small, large, individual. 
in determining what EHB means for purposes of that lifetime and annual dollar limit prohibition, a plan can choose any state benchmark plan as a reference point, or at least a self-insured plan can. When you talked about fully insured, fully insured generally is bound by what the state says is the, is the definition. So for a self-insured plan, um, they can designate any type of, or any state's benchmark plan um, in, in a different state. So in theory, a large group plan self-insured could select a state benchmark plan that excludes certain coverage items and then apply a lifetime or annual dollar limit on that benefit since that benefit isn't considered essential under that state benchmark plan. So the best example I could find and we've had these question, this question before, bariatric surgery, that's surgery to help with weight loss, that's covered under Hawaii's state benchmark plan, but not under Florida's. So if I designated Florida as my state benchmark plan as a self-insured plan, I'm now referencing that as my go-to point for uh, what is essential. Now I can place an annual dollar limit on bariatric surgery because it's not considered essential in that state. Okay, so that's how EHBs work under ACA, uh, but explain to us how that would change under the AHCA, which is obviously the Republican House bill that was passed. Right, so let's first be super clear. The AHCA does not eliminate the EHB requirement, and it does not eliminate the prohibition on annual dollar limits that we just talked about. Those both remain under the AHCA. What the AHCA does is allows states to waive the EHB requirement if they want. That gives the state additional flexibility to redefine what EHB should mean. So there's a chance that some a state could come in and just eliminate an entire AHB category. It's questionable whether that's allowed legally, um, but it's more likely that a state could come in and substantially narrow what it thinks should be included within that category. So we use the example of bariatric surgery in Hawaii versus Florida. That's a surgery that's not quite as mainstream, right? Some, so maybe not as impactful. But let's, let's say a different state, let's take Texas. What if they decided to apply for a waiver and then decided that even more basic benefit coverages were not essential? Um, the example I could come up with is prenatal care. What if Texas said, we no, no longer consider that essential? Well, for small and individual plans in that state, an insurer could exclude prenatal care as a benefit covered under the plan. They could just say, it's not essential, therefore we don't have to cover it. For uh, when it comes to the ACA's prohibition on annual and lifetime dollar limits, well, now suddenly a large group plan could designate Texas as their benchmark plan, and now they can apply a lifetime or annual dollar limit on prenatal care. So that would be allowed under the ACA because prenatal care is no longer essential and therefore there's no prohibition on an annual lifetime dollar limit on that benefit. So something on that, though, I will say when we were, it's not entirely clear under the AHCA if they could choose a state that has submitted a waiver as a benchmark plan. And that's something when we were on the Hill, we were asking um, Congress to clarify that if this is finally passed through the Senate as well, to clarify for self-insured plans whether they could use any state still, regardless of whether they had submitted a waiver pro a waiver application um, and had a different uh, set of EHBs defined. Right, so we could definitely still see additional changes that could clear up some of these challenges that we see under the AHCA. So you can see how the ACA's protections could be quickly eroded via the HCA, but only in those states where a waiver is requ requested. So we're going to talk a little bit about the CBO report here in a minute, but that seems to infer that only about half of the population of the U.S., 
would actually reside in states that would actually requ that would request waivers. Um, so those would be the states that generally lean Republican. Um, they just want to take that power back from the feds in defining what essential health benefits is. Um, so whether you just depends on where you fall in the political spectrum on whether you think that's good news or bad news, uh, but that's a potential impact for um, the non small and non-individual group markets. Right. And and again, back to the reason why they're, they're uh, requesting that uh, waiver process is they believe that EHBs add cost to the cost, add cost to the, the cost of a product. So the premiums go up mm -hmm. when you add these EHB categories because it's expanding the coverage requirements um, that is uh, required for insurers to, to cover. And so um, by stripping that down or allowing more flexibility, then, then the carriers can come in, design products that are more stripped down, but may be uh, of interest to some individuals. For example, for a male, they may buy a product that doesn't have maternity coverage, which certainly adds to the cost of a plan. And again, talking about the individual and small group market, not in the large group market. Hmm. So being that this was a big issue in the House, do you think it's still going to be a big issue in the Senate as well? Yes, I think this will be uh, up for continued debate in the Senate. Um, to begin with, the, the Senate is charged with figuring out if the EHB is something that belongs in the reconciliation process. So we've talked about that on podcasts before. Um, if it's going to be included in a reconciliation bill, it generally must impact the budget. They need to be revenue drivers or otherwise impact federal revenue. So it's easy to make that connection with some of the other items in the AHCA, like the individual and employer mandate tax penalties, Cadillac tax. These are revenue drivers for the government. It's a lot harder to make that connection with something like EHBs. Uh, but it's definitely a discussion point um, for the Senate Okay, so that brings us as a good segue into the CBO report. You say the Senate uh, may have a hard time getting the EHB through the reconciliation process, and we've also been hearing that the Senate is drafting their own bill. We heard I heard that as well last week when I was in D.C., that they literally were starting from scratch and drafting their own. Um, we know that the CBO last week issued its report on the impact of the AHCA. So give us some background on CBO reports uh, how the latest one will impact the Senate's efforts on repeal and replace? Yeah, so let's start with the basics. CBO stands for Congressional Budget Office. That's a federal agency within the legislative branch of the government, and it was created back in 1974. It seemed to have stemmed from a, a dispute between President Nixon and a democratically controlled Congress. They were arguing about spending, and Congress wanted to protect its spending powers from the executive branch. And so they created this CBO. The CBO is there to help Congress better understand the economic and budgetary impact of laws that they are debating and bringing up for votes. Um, it's meant to be nonpartisan. It's meant to be an independent analysis of budgetary and economic issues and it's supposed to support the congressional budget process. Um, so to do that, the CBO re releases these reports that are basically cost estimates for proposed le legislation, and they generally do not include any policy recommendations. So trying to stay out of it politically, yet forecast what's going to happen based on a, a proposed bill, it's a very difficult and tricky process and not always 100% um, accurate, but it's sort of the way I see it as the a best educated guess at what might happen based on 
um, what the CBO knows at that point in time. Um, it, the CBO report is supposed to come during the legislative process. Obviously, it doesn't always happen that way. We saw the AHCA being passed prior to a CBO report coming out. And so in some instances, that does happen. I think in this instance, the House probably had a pretty good idea of what the CBO report was going to look like because they did receive a CBO report on the original AHCA, the one that was never voted on. So they probably had a pretty good idea. It's going to be pretty similar. There are going to be some differences. And they were certainly ready to, at least most of them, to vote on that bill without a CBO report. So I don't think that gave them much of a hang up when it came to the amended version of the AHCA. So tell us what was in the new CBO report and uh, as it pertains to the amended AHCA. Yeah, so the two biggest that you're hearing the most about are the estimates relating to the number of uninsured and then the impact on the federal deficit. So let's let's start with the number of, of uninsured impacted because that's certainly what we heard most in the news. Yeah, this was sort of the biggest reported um, part of it and, and the most hot politically. Um, so basically, the CBO report estimated uh, it estimates that by 2026, 23 more, 23 million more people will be uninsured under the AHCA as compared to the ACA. So A that, large of that's due to the to the reduction of the Medicaid expansion or the reversal of the Medicaid expansion. Right. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. Um, and this was a 1 million less than the original CBO report. So you saw a little bit of a decrease there. And that is over t the next 10 years. Um, one issue that's been raised by those that don't like the CBO or that don't think it's accurate is that the CBO doesn't really define, the report never defines what it means to be insured. And so that's a great point. What, what are we really talking about when we say insured? Are we talking about as the ACA defines it, meaning you're under this plan that contains essential health benefits? Could we pull in catastrophic plans or limited benefit plans? Would that also be counted as, ins as insured for purposes of this? Right now, it's really hard to get a catastrophic plan, whereas under the AHCA, maybe those are a lot easier to get. And so some of these 23 million that we're talking about in the CBO report Maybe they actually would have coverage or a big portion of them would have coverage. And so you can start to see a lot of the assumptions. It's just a challenge. It's really hard to make that educated guess at what's going to happen. Well, and that's a great point, Chase, because the CBO is certainly limited in, in their analysis and what they can actually bring into their analysis. Mm -hmm. So there are, for example, um, as you brought up, having the idea that, that there could be expansion of other products available and what impact would that have on the uninsured is not something that they can can contemplate. So there right. are some limitations um, in their analysis. So you talked about the uninsured population. What about the impact on the federal deficit? Right. So this was um, touted as good news. Generally, the CBO report estimates that the AHCA would result in a net reduction of the deficit, the federal deficit. And that amount was $119 billion over the next 10 years. So it was a little bit less than the original version of the AHCA. And that was due to some of this money that the amendments to the AHC gave to the states to help address some of the high-risk pools. So it wasn't quite the savings that you saw through the deficit reduction, um, but it's still a significant amount of money over the next 10 years would cut into the federal deficit. So beyond those two points, Chase, what are the high-level takeaways from an employer's perspective from the CBO report? Right. So make some general estimates for premiums. Generally speaking, they're probably going to go up. But beyond that, for most across the board, it will depend on where the 
uh, individual resides. Now, I think that's generally talking about the individual market because we're talking about whether a state can waive out of essential health benefits. And so that is obviously individual and small group. That may translate over to larger group um, just because of the issue we talked about before with annual and lifetime dollar limits. Maybe that's something that reduces premiums in those um, states. But uh, across the board for older and poorer Americans, they might have a tougher ride when it comes to premiums. Again, this is individual market. But the, the CBL report says that the average 64-year-old earning just above the poverty line would have to pay about nine times more in premiums. Ah, that is so significant. And that's talking about somebody right before Medicare. Obviously, Medicare would kick in um, just beyond that. Right. But that's largely due to the age band change. Um, from three to one to five to one. Exactly. So if states have more flexibility, that's the population that's probably going to feel it the worst. Um, the CBO report also estimates that AHCA would cut spending on Medicaid by $834 billion. So a very significant amount of money. Obviously, the flip side of that coin is fewer people having coverage through Medicaid. And we already talked about that number plays into the total 23, 24 million that would go uninsured under the AHCA. So I don't think I've heard too many CBO reports that leave me feeling at ease <laughs> after reading them, but I, and I know that there were a lot of changes from the original CBO reports on the AACA. Just let's talk, let's talk about that. How accurate are these? Yeah, it's a tough question, and I don't know if anybody has a, a truly exact answer on. Um, they're heralded as nonpartisan estimates that are fair, fairly accurate, and they do have an impact on Congress and which way they vote on, on certain bills. Uh, you'll hear claims on both sides, though. You'll hear people saying they're totally inaccurate. You'll hear other people saying that they're fantastic and they totally um, support what the, the legislation should do. So um, a lot can change over 10 years, though, and you have a lot of assumptions going into the CBO estimates like we talked about. Um, so it's just a moving target. It's hard to know exactly how accurate they are. If you go and look back at original CBO reports, often they've been amended or changed based on information that's come in. So it's just it's a difficult question to say that CBO report was specifically um, accurate as it relates 10 years later. Think about all the changes that could happen in the medical world that could impact this. You could have um, restrictions on prescription drugs um, being lifted. You could have a breakthrough in cancer medications that suddenly decreases uh, cancer medication costs. That could have a huge impact on you know, medical spending and potential impact under what you're trying to forecast 10 years out. So just too much, too much information to really know how accurate they are. So definitely some room for interpretation in the data that the CBO is analyzing. Um, so we know that they're just an estimate. So with that, how does that impact uh, the Senate? Let's get back to the Senate and their repeal and replace efforts. Yeah, so definitely will have an impact. We've already seen uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He doesn't said he didn't know how he'd get to 50 votes on the AHCA now that we have the CBO report. Uh, Senate Finance Committee Chairman uh, Orrin Hatch, he's acknowledged that the CBO report makes their task a lot more difficult. So those are two pretty big players in the Senate saying that the CBO report, you know, sort of ch ch challenges them beyond what they thought. Um, but it appears the Senate's going to be drafting its own version of repeal and replace, and it's not entirely clear how the CBO would play into that version, but definitely has an impact and is you know being dis discussed by the Senate. 
Yeah, and one of the greatest impacts is that the Senate must abide by the same scoring as it applies as the AHCA's version, the House version, so in terms of federal deficit. So they, they have to come up with the same federal deficit number that's, that was displayed in the House bill um, as scored by the CBO. So if they decide to provide richer benefits, for example, fund more premium tax credits or expand Medicaid, that's costly. So they're going to have to come up with some revenue drivers to support that so that they, in the outcome, come up with the same federal deficit number as in the House bill. So that's why the CBO report is so important for the Senate and why mm -hmm. it really ties their hands and binds them um, because of that number factor or that outcome factor that they have to live by. Right. So for employer-sponsored plans, what is the big takeaway? Yeah, the big takeaway um, is business as usual. Like we've been saying on all these podcasts, the ACA is still the law of the land. Um, if the AHCA goes through, um, you may see some more flexibility um, on a plan's ability to put in some lifetime and annual dollar limits. We've already talked about some of the other impacts with uh, it'd be better for employers if they don't have to offer coverage to all their full-time employees, or at least they're not penalized under the employer mandate for not doing so. Um, so um, those are the main takeaways, main takeaway being business as usual for now. Um, but as specifically as it relates to EHBs, not a big impact one way or the other for large employers. Right. Yep. So when do you think we'll see something from the Senate? What's the timing? Well, I think most of the Senate, they were waiting for the CBO report to come out to sort of confirm what they thought about the H HCA and its impacts. And so now that that's out, I think we'll start seeing a lot more action on it. Um, we know that they were behind the scenes anyway, starting to draft what they want. Um, we, we've seen discussion on that, and we're hearing that that's in the works. Um, so, But we, we know that the Senate is working on that, and they're also bound by some time restrictions here when it comes to the reconciliation process. They can't really move on to 2018 until they deal with 2017. And so their time window to be able to do that is short. So probably be seeing something in the next one to two months is our guess and what we're hearing. So something in June, July, maybe something to kick off our nation's birthday around the July 4th. Who knows? Yeah, very good. And and just to clarify on that, they, they are only allowed one reconciliation bill a year. And since mm -hmm. the 2017 reconciliation bill is tied to the, the uh, health reform, um, they can't get to 2018 reconciliation bill, which is tied to tax reform, until they've completed the, the 2017 process. So that's why it's so important to get this done and out of the way so they can move on right. um, to bigger and better things, I guess you can say. So Chase, we appreciate you sharing all that information with us. And in compliance terms, that's uh, we'll say that's a wrap. That's a wrap. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.